Hello, everybody, and welcome to Whole Cluster Conversation. This week, we will be talking about yeast. Yes, without yeast, we wouldn't have wine. Just sticky, sweet grape juice. I'm Haley. This is Ashley. We are Whole Cluster Conversation. What is yeast? You're the biologist in the midst here. So maybe you want to take on a little bit of the basics of what yeast is. Yeah. So it is a single celled organism. It's actually in the mushroom or the fungus family. So um, that's kind of cool. And it's uh, there's probably about 1500 different yeast species, five of which we use in wine. Yes. Or I think so. Yeah. One species, really, but right. yeah, <laughs> five varietals. But so. um, yeast is this funny thing that a lot of us use but don't really think about. So if you've ever like baked bread um, or done your own fermentation at home, you might have think thought about yeast a little bit more than um, not. But yeast is around everywhere. There's We use it for baking. It can be used as a food supplement. For alcoholic fermentation. Like wine, beer, cider. Mm -hmm. Nutritional yeast, too. One of my favorite things to put on popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Which you lovingly refer to as nooch. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, the thing that um, yeast converts carbohydrates or sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. There's a chemical formula for that. Um, So basically C6H12O6 is the sugar and you add yeast and it creates CO2 and uh, creates wine or nice fluffy bread if you're using bread yeast, (laughs) (laughs) which um, can be the same. But um, as far as like if you want to think about fermentation a little differently, uh, your example of bread is a good one. So with bread, we really are looking at getting that CO2, that, that um, gas release to make our be- bread nice and fluffy rather than a bunch of alcohol development. So we're halting the fermentation quite early in the process while we're baking it. We're spiking that temperature so that the yeast um, isn't able to survive, but, it, but it's yeah. able to thrive enough to make a bunch of CO2 to make our bread nice and fluffy. Yeah, and I think we'll get into it a little bit later, but you know, you, yeast can die from a lot of different ways, yes. especially like if alcohol levels get too high. So yeah. I think that's where it comes. So, Haley, why do we use it in winemaking? <laughs> I mean, the really basic answer is we want to convert sugar into alcohol. Okay. That's the most <laughs> basic answer. <laughs> but there is a reason in winemaking that uh we use certain types of yeast or we let the wine sit with the yeast in it and we don't like sterile filter everything there's a bunch of craft producers that let the yeast sit in the wine there's no sterile filtration going on and okay. that's because yeast so the f- primary flavors that we get in wine are from the fruit itself like we get um berry flavors or um fruit flavors or other things like that but once the wine starts fermenting we get mm-hmm. secondary flavors, which are some of those um, more complex flavors like uh, you can find in wine, like coffee and uh, fresh baked breads or 
Um, that makes sense a little bit. Bacon. <laughs> um, Do you ever get smokiness? What people would say is a yeasty flavor. Yeah. Like oh, think okay. about champagne or other sparkling oh. wines that are made in that traditional method. Super cool. common in those. Um, nice. Yeah. So that that's one of the big reasons that in winemaking, it's important to choose your yeast correctly because of those secondary flavors that you're creating in that fermentation process. It's everything that's fermented gets those secondary flavors as well. So think about chocolate, mm-hmm. coffee, um, even other things that aren't fermented as much like kombucha. Um, it doesn't have a very high alcohol content, but it oh, does okay. have some of those really complex flavors. Okay. I yeah. had never thought of that with kombucha. I mean, I, like, I guess I knew that it was fermented, but like the level of fermentation that right. it goes through so that that's why there's not. I mean, I want, they put the label of small amount of alcohol possible. Right. <laughs> I want to learn more about the SCOBY in kombucha because I think it's a film yeast and... Um, uh, yeah, I, I want to learn more about what is going on in the SCOBY because <laughs> I'm really fascinated by, um, like the floor that you get in sherry wines. Oh. Everybody should Google that and look at the pictures. Um, there's a lot of pictures of like a barrel that has a plastic or I think it's plastic head and you uh-huh. can see the wine. And then there's like this really thick film, like an inch thick of, of what's called floor. And it's this native yeast in that region that, grows on the surface and that's what creates this distinct sherry flavors oh my word so I won't lie scoby kind of creeps me out I tried to make (laughs) well one of my friends gave me a starter for kombucha once and I was like nope 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 can't do this like because it just turned into weirdness and I think that that gets a little bit at one of the coolest parts of grapes is that you know there's all these different types of yeast and then you have like different ways that people use it for winemaking. And one of those ways is like getting basically the yeast from the air or the mm-hmm. yeast from the skin and bringing it into the process. Yes. The yeast from the skin of the grapes. Um, so yes. <laughs> not your skin. <laughs> right. I just wanted to make that clear for any <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so yeah, with winemaking, there's a couple ways that you can introduce yeast into your fermentation. Um, one would be, you know, think about, uh, we've talked about kind of the history very briefly, the history of winemaking and how old it is. So a couple mm-hmm. thousand years ago, you couldn't walk down to the store and buy a yeast. packet of freeze-dried yeast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of what was happening in, at that time was native fermentation in the sense that they're picking grapes, smushing them up, mm-hmm. leaving them for a couple of days, and all of a sudden they start to spontaneously ferment. Um, one of the examples I've also heard in terms of um, wanting to um, maybe control some of the fermentation process is more for beer making, and that's that they would throw in some um, some bread that maybe still had some living yeast in it, um, obviously. Oh our discussion just previously about that maybe I don't know if it was able to survive baking but maybe it was or maybe just being left out in the open meant that that bread was another vessel to for yeast to land on and and um travel through 
Well, I had heard at one point that something about bread making that was fascinating to me was kind of that same idea that that's how like kind of bread was discovered. Because back in the day, a lot of times they just would make the unleavened bread and not, you know, and flatbreads and whatever. And then it was basically a mistake of sorts where somebody left their bread and water out a little too long. A yeast from the air came in and like then voila we started getting bread so um right <laughs> so this, it makes sense to me that there would be something similar with wine yeah so, you think about the native yeast in the air like um there are certain regions of the world that are really famous for their sourdough mm-hmm. so like san francisco sourdough you, you can be in san francisco and you can buy some of their sourdough starter to take home with you because yeah. the yeast that is present there is different than the yeast that's present in San Diego or even um, maybe not that far away. Um, so um, there is a caveat of um, you can start sourdough starters almost anywhere in the world. You just have to feed them and make sure that they're healthy. But there are definitely areas that it's easier and or harder to start <laughs> sourdough starters. Um, and that's just the environment of the air and how easy it is for the yeast to kind of travel around um, being airborne or um, how healthy they can be um, during times of the year. Yeah. And one of the things that I was reading um, when doing some research about yeast and wine um, was how, you know, there are these five main producers of yeast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Leaven, Lavin, Red Star, Bitten. Oh, I think it's I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. No. Um, Bittner's Harvest, White Labs, and Y East, which shout out is in Hood River. Cause I was yeah. like, Y East, that's the the native name for what we call Mount Hood now. Um, so what but I thought it was really fascinating because there's those, and it was talking about how originally it was again kind of one of those mistakes. I feel like with yeast, it's always like a mistake that turns great. <laughs> like that's like science at its finest is when mistakes turn great. Um, but <laughs> basically, they talked about how there used to be all these like house yeast strains that mm-hmm. were in different cellars, and then some of them were able to survive past what the the skin yeast was able to survive and Mm -hmm. and live in environments of higher alcohol and so then essentially certain places got like oh we got a good yeast strain here right because there's like 1500 of them or more in the world (laughs) and they're on all seven continents fun fact um so you know they were able to harvest those and then just like keep them going so right so yeah, like we we're talking a little bit about the yeast on the skin. So a lot of those native yeasts are um, there's a couple of different kinds. Um, so there's a kind called Pitchia, Cleckera. Um, um, I'm so glad it's you saying these names. <laughs> Candida and even Zygosaccharomyces. So those are a lot of stuff that's found on grape skins um, because what we tend to use for our, our fermentations, if you're going to add yeast, you're going to buy yeast, um, you're typically going to buy Saccharomyces cerevisiae um, as the, the um, like 
known yeast that's going to ferment and do well. And there's different strains of that yeast. So that's the, the, um, species and the other species are typically found on the skins of grapes. So any wine makers that might be listening, a lot of those words maybe gave your heart a flutter (laughs) because a lot of those in the right environments can be spoilage organisms. Um, And you were saying a really good point. A lot of native yeast can start a fermentation and get things Mm -hmm. kicked off, but then they kind of die out. They're not the best for the job of fermenting all the sugar into alcohol, which is also why when we talk about um, wine in the ancient world, Mm-hmm. we have to think it's not like the wine that we drink today. And I know we've talked a little bit about that, but um, it's, it was a lot, usually it was a lot sweeter. Um, it was consumed very young. It wasn't aged in barrels or anything. Um, if they were aging any of it at all, it was um, kind of by default of, oh, we have extra. So it's just going to sit in these uh, typically amphora style, like big pots, clay pots. Um, so the, and the, And another thing that I've read is sometimes maybe depending, um, they would drink it so young that it would be fizzy. So it was going to be more of like that kombucha style. Um, So it was a little bit alcoholic, um, enough to maybe give you a buzz, but not not like we're drinking now, not like a big, uh, really ripe Zinfandel that um, is going to be 16% alcohol or something. (laughs) So you mentioned that in the ancient times or whatever before that Mm -hmm. there would be a lot of, it would be sweeter. And one of the things I was reading was that, you know, in that process of yeast converting the sugar into the ethanols that sometimes you, you know, there's the byproducts of it, Um, And sometimes when that isn't fully converted, that that's when you have a lot more of those sugars left in your wine, which can sometimes be not so good of a thing. I mean, (laughs) it depends, but sometimes it can cause more of a hangover. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think that that's, I don't know, that's kind of interesting and just a good point to think about of like why knowing your yeast and how well it's doing in the process Mm -hmm. is really important because you might not be converting all the sugars that you want to, but maybe that's what you're wanting to do is, I mean, is that kind of a method that some people do? That's definitely a winemaking style, leaving things um, with residual sugar. Yeah. Um, And another thing that some people might do that they call a native fermentation is they start a culture in their winery Mm -hmm. that's not using, they'll use the maybe grape juice or grapes, um, but they're actually harvesting a lot of the um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae that's in the air or around the winery by like doing a, kind of a sourdough starter. Oh, okay. If that makes sense, but it's a wine starter. Um, okay. Yeah. And there's other ways to, uh, so that's native fermentation, using the, the stuff that's present in the environment. Um, mm-hmm. And like you were saying, the house strains that became really popular and were the first um, yeasts that were commercially sold. Mm-hmm. A lot of those were Saccharomyces cerevisiae that were in different regions that were doing great fermentations that mm-hmm. were being collected in that way. They weren't necessarily, they weren't just smushing up some grapes and being like, done, now we just walk <laughs> away. Um, yeah. They were adding stuff to those that was, like I said, kind of similar to a sourdough starter, but not um, not, not like feeding it with... Um, uh, you wouldn't be feeding it with a bunch of 
flour and stuff. You'd be, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how people have made them. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I should figure that out because it's um, interesting to think about. But now most wineries, I would say, um, add their uh, known thing to their wine, a type of Saccharomyces cerevisiae that they have purchased. Or there are a couple other um, Saccharomyces, um, different um, species of Saccharomyces mm. that are used. Um, and I could look into it. I'm sure commercially available, there are also other yeasts that winemakers have experimented with um, that are completely different, like in those, in the um, the different um, species. But um, within Saccharomyces cerevisiae, there are tons of different strains of yeast that are commercially available. Okay. So yeah, at- I saw a list, I think. I shared it with you at one point and it was mm-hmm. just one place and it was just this huge list yeah. with all these weird numbers and codes associated with it for all the strains. Right. And there's different places again, like, like if the Barolo region had a specific type of yeast that they've been using for a while, but now there's a lab there that's been able to say, Oh, actually there's, there's three different strains mm-hmm. and we're going to tweak a strain to do what we want it to do to, to make different, um, they can do that as well now in a lab where they, they take yeast and they can, um, kind of genetically engineer it to do different things that they want it to. Interesting. So in all of this conversation, I'm thinking about, and we've like kind of touched on it, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about people that don't add yeast, Mm -hmm. um, and the Saccharomyces cerviaceae. (laughs) I need to learn how to say that better because I really like every time you say it. Um, And so what are they doing in that process? One thing that I was thinking that kind of came to mind was that we haven't brought up is that kind of a part of this fermentation process, which we'll get into way more about fermentation in another episode, but is actually like heat. And like if Mm -hmm. your yeasts are too cold, they're not going to be working. So I think about that with like natural winemaking or, or, or not adding yeast to it and how Mm -hmm. there's some level of like temperature control with it to make sure that your yeasts are, that you do have are working the best. So, right. And that is one of the, um, so there's a couple different things that the yeast labs will modif- genetically modify the yeast for, um, uh-huh. or engineer, I guess. I don't, I, it is a modification, but I don't know how that's made. Um, and that is like heat. Um, so if they get really hot, like if they spike and mm-hmm. they get really hot really fast, or if it's more of just a, you know, they low they, and slow. <laughs> yeah. They don't create as much heat or they're better at dispersing their heat. Um, so, and that all has to do with how much energy the different strains of yeast need to Mm -hmm. use up in order to convert. Um, and that's a chemical level that I don't really understand. I know there's, it gets uh, into ATP ATP and ADP and NADH and yeah, which has, yeah. And that has to do with what I remember anaerobic processes and the conversion at the like cell level of energy within your cells. So, um, oh man, I wish I remembered that stuff better. (laughs) I remember taking like biochemistry and doing all these fun chains of that. And it's, it's very fascinating. So (laughs) I didn't take those. (laughs) (laughs) That was so long ago. Anyways. Um, so yeah, it's, um, 
the heat dispersal can be really important. Um, that actually is a really nice uh, kind of segue into talking about keeping yeast healthy. So mm-hmm. there's there's a couple things you need during a fermentation to keep yeast humming along and doing their thing and doing it well. One thing is dispersing that heat. Um, oh, okay. So if you just smushed up some grapes, threw in some yeast or didn't throw in some yeast, they would start to ferment. They would spontaneously start to ferment or... Um, if you threw in yeast, obviously they would start to ferment with that commercial strain that you put in there. Um, mm-hmm. But they're going to get to a point where they start to get stressed. And usually the first thing that will happen is they'll start to get stressed because of the heat. If you just walk away and you don't do anything with that. So yeah. um, you worked with Vincent. Um, uh-huh. How did do you know how you guys disperse the heat? Uh, wh- no. Pump, pump all, all I Yes. Yeah, I guess. Yes. That's so a we really did... big way to disperse heat. <laughs> I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I just yeah. thought I was mixing up everything. You were. Um, the other big thing that we did with him, because he doesn't add yeast to his wine that I know of. Um, Sorry, Vincent. <laughs> and uh, is that because is that we would actually take the things out to the sun sometimes if it wasn't going fast enough, like mm-hmm. it wasn't fermenting fast enough. So we would yeah. like do things like that to just kind of help them along. Yeah. So if you don't know what kind of fermentation you have going on um, in your winery uh, or if you're making something else, uh, temperature can give you a gauge of that. So okay. like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, um, typically like to ferment above, well, they'll ferment below 60 degrees, but, mm-hmm. but usually they'll get sluggish or sick or, sl- or be really not, not doing great if they're below 60 degrees. They really kind of, they can do it, but it's a struggle. I'm sorry. I'm having an aha moment here of just thinking about the like timing of the plants and then timing of the yeast and how it all works well together with that. Like as you are moving into the spring and it's getting warmer, then your yeast is like, oh my, sorry. I just had a fun (laughs) moment there. That's really cool. How these things co-evolve together to help, you know, form an awesome product. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, if you have something like um, there's a lot of wineries that like to do cold soaks. So they'll they'll get their fruit off the vines, get it, um, especially for red wines, they'll get it mm-hmm. um, uh, removed from the stems or mostly removed from the stems, squished up. And then they put it in their cold room for a couple days. And during that time, depending on how they're managing it, you can go in and you can see like some bubbling happening. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's going to be native yeasts. So even okay. the people that don't, do native fermentation a lot of times will end up having a little bit of native ferment go on until they add their commercial strains that they're they know is going to be their workhorse and get that fermentation finished so you're they're basically kind of putting them into the cold to say like hold on a second before we really get you started right and a lot of that um, different people have different opinions um the science i think says for a couple days it can maybe help with color there it doesn't hurt with color but actually Mm -hmm. if you go more than like two or three days for a cold soak there's no improvement in your color Um, but there is a change in your aroma development oh okay yeah so that gets into the like yeast parts or in the wine present like thinking about your tastes and your aromas and how Mm -hmm. you're influencing that in the winemaking process yeah that's that's really cool before (laughs) even you ferment yeah oh those yeasts are so cool um (laughs) 
Okay, so temperature, what are some other things that you need to have a healthy fermentation? Yeah, well, you want to make sure that um, before you start your fermentation, you want to test or if you don't test your your must, either you know it well enough because every year it comes in around the same numbers or you're willing to roll the dice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you want to test your nutrient levels, a couple different nutrient levels in your must, especially your yeast assimilable nitrogen, which mm-hmm. um, in the industry people call that EAN. And okay. um, sometimes your potassium levels um, and your pH levels because yeast definitely like a certain pH range, a certain temperature range. And again, those nutrient levels. Um, if you don't have I enough nutrients, say, oh. go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that was one of the coolest part or one of for the nerdy science part of me when I was working with the winemaker is the whole lab aspect of testing all of those things. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. continue. <laughs> a lot of yams are run with a, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm going to forget what it's called. An essay thing like where they they like run a bunch of stuff and then they like shoot light in it and they see like how it changes the photo spectrum yeah 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 that's the thing they oh my gosh I'm remembering bio labs from like (laughs) freshman year yeah looking at at that because it it has to do with like the plants and how well they're okay let's just nick (laughs) (laughs) so So, many years ago (laughs) so yeah for a healthy ferment temperatures huge. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, uh, so and we just talked a little bit about nutrients. Um, the other thing that, um, you were doing when you did your pump overs mm-hmm. or when people do punch down, sometimes winers do punch down, sometimes they do pump overs. It depends on the vessel, the size of, um, like how big your fermenter is. Cause like you can't do a punch down on a, on a, even a thousand gallon tank, um, yeah. which is a big tank, but it's not absurd. Um, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, it's big enough. You can't do a punch yeah. down on it. Um, so, uh, those things you do pump overs just, and then if you're trying to be more delicate with the fruit, a lot of people say that, um, uh, punch pump overs are more delicate with the fruit. Um, so the other thing that you're doing is not just temperature dispersal, but oxygen integration. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking about. I think with the punch downs that I was doing was, okay, we're introducing oxygen and mixing it up yeah. to help with it. Yeah. And um, I know that you and I talked a little bit before we got into this about uh, the fact that yeast is this funny thing. It's a, oh shoot, it's a, they're facultative anaerobes, which means they can exist and function in both the presence and absence of oxygen. Yeah. That's why they're so cool. (laughs) Yeah. To keep them healthy and not stress them out or make them uh, do things like we're trying to push them in the direction we want them to go, which is fermenting that sugar into alcohol. If they don't get enough oxygen, they Mm -hmm. might keep converting. They should keep converting that sugar into alcohol, but they're going to like start producing off odors or aromas because they're, they're stressed out or they're going to become um, like a stuck fermentation or a sluggish. They're going to really slow down because they're getting, they're like, they yeah. don't have enough uh, stuff to keep them healthy and pushing them forward. I think about this just to like put it into a different perspective with composting. And oftentimes that's what I talk to my clients about because one of the big complaints with composting is it smells. And that is when you're having an anaerobic, 
without uh-huh. the oxygen environment. And so that's why in composting, it's actually important to, there's a couple methods you can either go through and flip it. So similar to winemaking in the yeah. punch down process, or you can actually stick these tubes with holes in it into your compost pile. And that's oftentimes when people have huge compost piles, they kind of like, as they're layering it up, will like put these tubes in. Oh. And so that allows oxygen flow into the center of your pile. So again, so that as those bacteria um, or like in the winemaking process, the yeast are mm-hmm. converting the things, they're still in the aerobic with oxygen phases. Yeah. So um, similar, it's just, you know, a good parallel to like the the composting yeah. whatever world it can still thinking. function but it's not going to be the same type of function yeah and again those smells are like your first cue of hey something's not going in the way that I want it to go so in the winemaking process it's like okay something's not going right with the yes. wine and in the composting it's like oh yeah it's not composting right and then Yeah. So if you have issues with your compost pile, add oxygen. (laughs) There is like a lot of people will just wait until they have a problem with their ferment before they remediate it. Um, The Mm -hmm. really big winemaker or wineries, um, as well as anybody that's new to the industry, I really suggest you um, look at your um, the levels of different nutrients available to your yeast because uh, it can make a big difference. Um, You don't have to do it necessarily like on a barrel by barrel, depending if you're doing barrel ferments or on a ton by ton basis, but even just a general, like, okay, we took a composite sample and this is what it said. Um, mm-hmm. is could be very helpful. And if you do start to get a stinky ferment, there's a couple things that can help with that. But, um, I think that's a conversation for, if we talk about fermentation in general. Yeah. Oh, that's so. cool. Can we just step back? So the nutrients again is just like, the grapes, right? Or are you adding There's, extra sugars sometimes too? No, typically it's a, it's a nitrogen uh, or something like a nitrogen. Oh, okay. They need yeast assimilable nitrogen. We actually use something called DAP, diammonium phosphate, okay. is a really popular one to add to, to okay. your fermentation so that the yeast are happy. Another thing, if the yeast have enough nutrients, but they get stressed in some way, either it gets too hot or too cold or usually they'll get a little stinky. And mm-hmm. something that we do first, if we know we have enough nutrients, is we, we will um, add some yeast holes. So they're actually just basically dead yeast that we okay. that we put into the fermentation to say, well, oh. and there's, um, I haven't read the science behind that. I just know that it typically works. <laughs> there's something <laughs> in the yeast holes that have enough um, nutrients that give them like that little baseline that they need to stop being so stressed, as well okay. as, we look at what what's happening. Like if it's a really hot ferment, we obviously try to cool it down. If it's a really cold ferment, we try to warm it up. Um, but yeah, adding those yeast holes typically gives them enough of a little push to keep them a little happier. Happy yeast equals good wine. I tell people all the time, yeast are like little Olympic athletes. If you uh, give them what they need, they will win those gold medals. But if you don't... <laughs> then they're just going to be like all the rest of us. Like you have to have the right nutrition. You have to have the right conditions. You have to have the best equipment um, for those yeast. If you know, if you think about them as that, that Olympic level athlete. 
And those house ones were like the continual gold medalists that were like, oh, you're a good yeah. one. We're, we're going we're gonna to keep you around. There's some really cool research about how yeast actually has co-evolved with humans uh-huh. um, or definitely probably the like Saccharomyces cerevisiae and things like, like there's certain strains that have co-developed with humans where they, um, if we stopped using them, they mm-hmm. might go extinct because... Oh, or maybe not go extinct, but they would definitely have a very, um, uh, they would, their, their role in the world would significantly change because they they rely on us just as much as we rely on them. <laughs> it's kind of like plant. I heard that about plants one time too, about how I like that's, I think that that almost gets it like why I love like ecology and science is getting at that, like with plants, how we have manipulated them in such a way to serve our functions. Like you think about the tulips or roses and like getting those particular colors or like in yeast again, like getting these particular strains. But at the same time, the plants and the yeast have kind of turned it back on us too of like saying, this is what I want. And so then we do things to like do to make them happy. Completely. (laughs) uh, I think that's definitely happening here in the yeast conversation (laughs) okay do we have any other things that we need to go over about like what yeast needs to have healthy fermentation I don't think so okay cool so um to kind of start wrapping this up or uh, well we have a lot more we can discuss but yeah um, we, we there's a lot more we can discuss but this is a great yeah I was thinking I would love to just talk about yeast in still wine versus bubbly wine and kind of get it okay. back to your your wheelhouse yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah. So what how are you using like how is yeast used differently in those two winemaking processes? There's a couple key differences in making sparkling wine. One, um, there's so at 3100, we add a commercial strain of yeast um, mm-hmm. called DB10, which is uh, from the Champagne region. Okay. And we would love to start experimenting with wild yeast, but um, we don't currently, we don't have that ability um, in our um, winery contract. So we lease space. So the person in charge of our lease is um, d- like, they can say, you know, you're not clean enough. You got to clean that up or, you know, things like that. So that's the same idea kind of with wild yeast is they kind of, they can be a problem. So do we really want to introduce them? So when we have our own space, we uh, will experiment a little bit with wild yeast because there's a lot of new research that has come out that is about um, wild yeast and how it can really change the flavor profiles in sparkling wine that's um, made in the traditional method, um, especially for that secondary fermentation that happens in bottle. Okay. So that's my kind of piece about wild yeast and um, uh, sparkling wine, but Mm -hmm. the traditional way that we make our wine and the differences in the way we manage our yeast are, we like a yeast that is pretty flocculent, which means it... um, Yeah, define that word. (laughs) That it... uh, I didn't look up the definition, so hopefully I don't get this completely wrong, but that it, um, 
I mean, you think about the flock, like it's the same base word, I'm sure. So that it's going to produce enough, um, like of a cloudiness that it will be able to sink or, okay. um, it will be able to, um, create a larger stru- like structure molecule oh. by sticking together so that it then sinks. Yeah. Because larger molecules are heavier and that's right. why they sink. So, and the reason we want that is because when we have our wine in bottle and it's aging, um, mm-hmm. we want there to be enough wine or enough yeast in there that it's interacting with the wine in a way that is um, developing flavors and things. But then we also want it to sink when we're riddling it so that mm-hmm. we can then take it out in the disgorgement process. Um, and the one other difference between making still wine and sparkling wine in most sparkling wine houses mm-hmm. is they typically have a little tank that's separate um, most of the year, but definitely during um, harvest where mm-hmm. they actually um, have their own culture going continuously. So instead of taking a freeze dried culture and rehydrating it and throwing it into the batch, they actually have a culture that they're feeding like on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, a lot of times in the big sparkling wine producers is a commercial strain, but they're still, um, they're still feeding it and keeping it alive and and doing it that way rather so that they have a pretty high number of cell count when they add it to their, to the wine, Um, especially for secondary fermentation, because most of your nutrients are gone at that point. So when you, you want to have a nice big cell count of yeast so that it starts out healthy and happy to do Mm -hmm. that secondary fermentation in a bottle. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So Haley, I feel like every one of our conversations leads to so many more questions in my (laughs) mind, but like this, I really love this topic and I want to come back and maybe explore some more of it. And I think when we talk about fermentation in the future, I'm, we're going to probably talk about fermentation a lot. Um, maybe even whole cluster fermentation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I, but anyways, so with that, is there any other things that you want to just talk about that we didn't discuss? Um, I think, I mean, there's so much that I could talk about. This is such a fascinating subject and I hardly scratched the surface on the scientific parts of it. I know Mm -hmm. I'm not a scientist. So the little bit that I do know is, so based in rudimentary knowledge that um, it's almost embarrassing, but you it's practical for what you need to know completely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, that you showed that like knowing and understanding like, okay, you need the yeast for this and the practicality of how you use it in the winemaking process. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Well, should we wrap up? And uh, I think that, if you guys have any other questions about yeast, um, send them our way. And I think we can definitely talk about this more in the future. Yes. So, we would love to. It. More yeast, more fermentation, more everything. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to be talking to uh, someone I know, Gig Ledbetter from Meriwether Cider, about how he makes cider. We're looking forward to it. And if you have any questions about cider or um, maybe you could share a favorite cider you have locally, let us know. Please email any questions or comments in at wholeclusterconversation at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Whole Cluster Conversation. 
Music provided by Michael Johnson of Grand Falconer. Audio production provided by our friend Ukiah Vogel. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you like to listen. Ciao.